0: Proverbs 28, verses 13 and 14. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Last week, we saw probably what was one of King David's lowest points in his entire life we saw that he went out and lusted after a woman. He not only lusted after her, but he committed adultery, even though he found out that she was from a very prominent family. Three guys that were close, near, and dear to him that were on his council, one being a mighty man. She got pregnant. Now, that's getting pretty low. But you know, but that's not the lowest thing that took place. The lowest thing that took place was he went out and had the man killed just so that he could try and hide his sin. Boy, that sounds really surreal. Is it, is it that, doesn't that even happen in today's world? Well, of course it does. And that's why I am so grateful that God has given us this example of David's life to be able to study it and apply it and to show us that he still uses, no matter what, because all he has is flawed people for his good. Let's pick back up this week with 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich men had a great many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. David's sin displeased the Lord. Remember what it it said last week at the end. God saw that David had done evil. It was evil in his eyes. And we hear that a lot when it comes up and we get, look at all the different kings. This king did more evil in the eyes than the previous one. And I really think that the blessings that David had been receiving up to this time of being prosperous, being successful, I got a feeling that those blessings kind of, well, they disappeared. He was walking in such a way that he wasn't really feeling all that convicted of what he had done. God's working on him. God's working on him hard, but he's ignoring his conscience. He's ignoring what's done because he thought that he had gotten away with murder, no pun intended. Most scholars believe, most scholars believe that he lived in an unrepentant life for nine months, the entire time that Bathsheba was pregnant. And you have to remember, all of the army and all of the men of Israel, they're not here in the city at this time. They are out surrounding and, and putting siege to the city of Ammon. So they're not here It took nine months before God finally said, you know what? You're not paying attention. So he sends his friend Nathan to go talk to him. During this time, I'm pretty sure that David wrote no songs. I'm pretty sure he didn't really go worship God the way he should have had, because I don't know about you, but when I'm in deep in sin, I really don't want to face God. And I think that's how David was feeling. He may have even felt just a little dead on the inside. Romans 8, verses 6 through 8. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, God mercifully just kept on going after David, didn't he? He just kept on picking at him. And even though he didn't listen and didn't want to listen, he sent somebody. He sent Nathan. Now, Nathan, I'm pretty sure, is really close with David. They're really friendly. And I have to believe that he went and saw David on a regular basis to bring to him any news that was taking place and to tell him of the troubles that's going on, so that David, as king, could make the decision on on how to solve it. So here he comes, and with wisdom and courage, he tells David this tale. tale. It's common in those days for people to keep little lambs as pets. No different than we do dogs and cats. You pick them up, you love them. I hear people have goats for pets. I had a goat for a pet once, but I didn't like it. They were nasty. So I left it outside. I didn't go play with it. I didn't go pet it. None of the above. Now, Amy says, goats make great pets. They're funny. They're funny. But I myself, I'm not real crazy about it. So here it is. We know that people in those times and even today still have those kind of animals for pets. And they love them dearly. So this tale that Nathan presents to David, is really, when you get down to it, he's telling David he's describing a theft, is what he's describing here. And there is a sense in which David stole something from Uriah. But see, David doesn't realize that he's being talked about here. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. David did not have the authority over Bathsheba's body. And he stole it from Uriah. Adultery and sexual immorality, in all reality, they're theft. It's just like uh, taking something that does not belong to us. It's like we said last week. This is where lustful thoughts and pornography fall in. If you're married and you're going these things, lusting after other women and looking at pornography, you're stealing something. You're not honoring your wife or your spouse. David knew the laws that God had given. So he would have really understood the principle of what was established in Leviticus 18, especially that of Leviticus 18 verse 20. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. He would have understood this. And as we know, this example that Nathan gave was to show him the evil of the sin that he had done. He's guilty in defiling Bathsheba. He's guilty of making himself unclean and not pleasing in God's sight. How many wives and concubines did this guy have that he kept at a distance? He had a lot, not as many as Solomon, but he had a lot. Just like the rich men that have tons and tons of flocks that they keep out in the distance in the fields. If he had had only one, just one, And she had been near and dear to him as that ewe lamb was this owner in the story. Had she been as dear to him as described in Proverbs 5, verse 19, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. He would not have had any need whatsoever to look elsewhere and to go elsewhere. Out of all the wives that he had, the one that I thought he should have been most pleased with would have been Abigail. We were told that she was extremely beautiful and intelligent. One of the top three most gorgeous women in the world. That's what we're told. Uriah was like that poor man. He had only one wife, Bathsheba. She was near and dear to him, near and dear to his soul. They were united as one. And he thought that she was the only, that's it. It's only us. Or so he thought, because if it was just the two of them, there wouldn't have been any issue with David. And he had no desire for anyone else. When David heard what Nathan had told him, he thought it was a real life situation. Oh my gosh, Nathan's bringing me this issue. I got to take care of it. And his response was really pretty much scary when you think about it. Second Samuel 12 verses five and six. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Notice Nathan didn't ask for a judgment. Nathan just told him a story. But David thought it was real. David immediately passed sentence, a death sentence for crying out loud on the man that took the one man's lamb. That's a scary situation. David showed just what often happens with us. When we have a guilty conscience about something, how harsh are we on others to say they, they are guilty? And we don't condemn our own sins. We want to pass judgment on everybody else because we don't want to confront what we are dealing with. David showed and said, This man shall surely die. This was not, believe it or not, a capital offense according to the law. It didn't matter who stole, it was not a capital offense. David had to condemn his own sin before he could find forgiveness. And that's what I also find in our lives as Christians. We have such a hard time forgiving other people because we cannot forgive ourselves of our sins, even though we know God has. We know God has forgiven us, but we just can't seem to forgive ourselves. And when you can't do that, it's hard to forgive others. David's use of of that oath as the Lord lives. Ooh, this was really scary to me. It shows how passionate his indignation is. I want God to be present at this pronouncement, at this judgment. I want God to know that I'm doing this. Oh, it's a terrible thing and God's going to bless it. But he also knew that it wasn't enough to say this man should die. He has to make restitution. He needs to restore something that he stole. What did it say in Exodus 22, 1? If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. You see, David understands the law. He knows what it says. And he knew that true repentance means restitution. I think the rash judgment David proclaimed shot Nathan so bad that he could no longer hold his tongue. Second Samuel 12, verses seven through nine. Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Isaac. So much for thinking he'd gotten away with things. Oh man, I was so good at keeping this all a secret. I was pretty sure. God knows and sees everything. You cannot hide your sin from God. You can't even hide it from the world. Because anybody that knows you knows you're guilty of something when you don't act the same as you normally do. And they can ask you all the times that they want. Is everything okay? Yep, everything's just fine. Nope, not, I'm good, I'm good. Nothing wrong here, nothing to see. Nathan hid him in such a simplistic but immediate way that it shocked David. He applied this parable or story so rapidly that I'm sure David, look on his face, was like, oh, my gosh. He jumped. He was in shock. In plain terms, Nathan told him, you are the man in this story. You are the one that's guilty. And you are guilty of so much more because you murdered her husband. You deserve to die. You proclaimed your own judgment. He then speaks immediately from God and in God's name for God. He's a prophet. That's what he does. Through Nathan, God explained to David that his sin was really a base expression of ingratitude. When God gave all this to David, it wasn't enough. All he had to do was ask because God had so much more to give him. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak from want For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and also I I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. After listing all the things he was given, given to David, the question that he is presented with sends chills up my spine, and it should yours as well. Why have you despised the commandments of the Lord? To do evil in his sight. That should send chills. Psalm 19.8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, yet by his Sin, he despised the commandment of the Lord. David acted as if God's commandment, well, was wrong and had to be despised when he did evil in his sight. Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. His sin is exposed in a way in which he was trying to avoid. God will not allow David to blame anyone or anything else. 2 Samuel 10 verse 12. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. God promised him from that day on, there's not going to be any peace in your house. You're going to know nothing but violence and bloodshed from within your own family. David demanded a fourfold restitution for that one little fake lamb. God says, no problem. You will pay Fourfold in restitution for the killing of Uriah. What does he do? What's he going to do? He takes Bathsheba's child, Ammon his son, Absalom, and Adonijah his son. Four for one. God said that David despised the commandment of the Lord. Well, here Nathan explained that in doing this, David despised God himself. And we cannot despise God's commandments without despising him. 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There are a lot of people who live in either open or hidden sin. Think about that. Are they walking in God's truth? Are they walking the way they need to walk in God? No. No. You can't have fellowship with God and despise him at the same time. That just doesn't work. And God didn't even use Bathsheba's name to say Uriah's wife. He just says, you have stolen the wife of Uriah. You have done this. He's to consider her as an individual, as someone else's wife, because it was done in sin. 2 Samuel 12, verses 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. God warned David that because he troubled another man's house, God will allow trouble to come upon his house. And from within his house, Job 31.10, Then let my wife turn the millstone for another man, and may other men have sexual relations with her. Since David violated another man's wife, someone will violate his wives. And lo and behold, this was fulfilled in 2 Samuel 16, verses 21 and 22. Absalom abused his father's concubines on the housetop on that very same rooftop that he saw Bathsheba and lusted. And he did it in broad daylight. Isn't that what God just said? It'll happen under the sun in front of everybody. Second Samuel 12, verses 13 and 14. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And David, And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. David's confession is a good example when we look at it today. He placed the blame squarely on himself. It's on his shoulders. He did not minimize his offense. David realized especially the steady sin against God. In the original Hebrew, David's statement, I have sinned against the Lord, amounts to only two words. "Hata Yehovah. These two words and the heart they reflect show the fundamental difference between David and Saul. Just like an apology to someone that we have wronged today. What is the absolute best apology in the world? I am sorry that I did whatever it was I did to you will you please forgive me? No ifs, no ands, no buts, no ors, no shifting of blame to anybody. David spoke about himself, even though there, he could have said, well, we sinned, because he wasn't the only one that sinned. Bathsheba was there too. But David knew that he had to deal with his sin. Romans fourteen verses ten through twelve, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, are you again? Why do you regard your your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. When you're standing before God, there is no well, we know it's you. There's no we. David showed personal responsibility for his sin. And he didn't use elaborate or soft language. He sinned. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an error. It wasn't a oops, a regrettable mistake. It was not even a problem, an indiscretion. I. Sin against God. And we seem to categorize categorize sin from little sins to large sins. And you know, it's okay. You can do the little sins and you'll ask for forgiveness. But boy, you better stay away from them big ones. You better stay away. Well, the last time I checked, sin is sin. And sin is living contrary to God's character. And he views sin as sin. And it affects our personal relationship with him. Isaiah 59, verses one and two. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But, you and you, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. David was told that God had taken away his sin. Oh, what a wonderful thing to hear. God's forgiveness was immediate. God did not demand a time of probation. Well, you know, you got this much time to show you're worthy of it. No, it was immediate. He was told that he would not die, which meant that he didn't have to face the death penalty for adultery. David, you set a bad example for all of it, for everybody, for all of Israel. You have showed everybody that you're no different than the rest of the kings in the surrounding areas because this is the type of stuff that they would do and hide it and not have to face the consequences. You might not die, however. However, sin has consequences and collateral damage. We say this all the time. God told him that his newborn child is going to die. There is a difference in uh, judgment for sin and judgment by sin. God forgave David's sin, but he would not shield him from, from the, uh, every consequence of that sin. David had to face the consequences beginning with the death of the child born by Bathsheba. This shows that God did not only want to heal David of the guilt of the sin, but he wanted to make sure that the sin was no longer around to remind him. He wanted to heal him from the presence of it. And when you look at it, did it work? Did you ever read where David committed adultery again? No. God uses to drive these impurities from him. Second Samuel 12 verses 15 and 16. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. This is a really hard thing for a lot of folks to accept. Quite often, innocent suffers because of the sins of the guilty. Now, you're not held responsible for your father's sins, but because your father's sin has done what he's done, it affects how you grew up. And it gives you the opportunity to be led down the same path. And that's the scary part. Since sickness came immediately after Nathan spoke these words, everybody attributes this was God's judgment. It was immediate. And it's far more tragic for David and Bathsheba than it was for the child. Because I'm pretty sure that God put out that hand that kept the child from suffering. And it illustrates an important principle. Even when sin is forgiven, a price must be paid. Blood has to be shed. God does not simply pass over or excuse our sin. It is forgiven and a price is paid. Often, that innocent party pays for that price for our forgiveness. Hmm. Sounds like what Christ did for us, doesn't it? Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? See, David went down and he was like going, I'm thinking he's pleading for the child's life. It's no different than what we would do with our own kids. He's pleading, but is God going to change his mind? Thank you. (laughs) That's exactly right. God does not change his mind, never. Never. David was right though, to come and fall down and ask for mercies, ask for grace. He was right in doing that. But God's judgment is pronounced. When it's pronounced or when it's present, we should receive it. We shouldn't receive it passively or fatalistically because God's judgment is God's judgment. We should cry out to God in repentance and ask for his grace and his mercy. It took seven days for the child to die. During this time, I'm pretty sure that David did not eat, David did not drink, David did not change his clothes, did not bathe. All of his folks that were there they thought, man, he's dealing really harsh, you know, hard with this. What's he gonna do if the kid dies? Well, when the child was gone, David saw everybody whispering, and David knew what had happened. Second Samuel twelve, verse twenty. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Now, this was really confusing for these servants. David, for Pete's sake, we saw what you did for all this time, fasting, and, all, and now you're just, the kid's died, and all of a sudden you're just like, well, okay, I'm cleaned up, give me food. What are the reasons for these reactions? We, got, we don't understand. 2 Samuel 12, verse 22, and he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows? the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. This shows that extraordinary prayer and fasting does not change God's mind. What was it that you said a second book? Is God, is, does God change his mind? No. <laughs> and what took place, is this anything different than we would have done today? in our lives to beg for mercy, to plead for a family member? No, I don't think so. Now, we may not get up and immediately bathe and, and go worship and praise God and then say, okay, I'm going to eat now because it's the pain of it all still might be a little too close, near and dear to our hearts. But we should have the same attitude and thoughts that David did. I can't bring them back but I'll see him again soon. After he ate, he went, in, uh, he went in the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he ate, came out and ate. And it shows that David's extraordinary prayer and fasting, they really were answered. He was given mercy. He was given grace. Because the pain of it all, he accepted it without anything else. He had peace about it. He was comforted in the whole situation. The ability to worship and honor God in a time of trial or crisis is a wonderful demonstration of spiritual confidence. That's Christian life. Death is nothing but a thing that takes place. As Christians, we know we're going to see them again if they were Christians. 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan, the prophet, and he named them Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. This is the first time that Bathsheba is actually called his wife and by name. Each time before, she's only called the wife of Uriah. Only now after the chastisement for sin is she called Bathsheba his wife. Micah 7 verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This blessing shows that God did not command David to forsake or leave her. Take her, treat her as your wife, treat her well. He was to honor God in the marriage commitment even though it began in sin. We serve a God of mercy and compassion. We serve a God who is all ready to forgive us of our sins When we fall short of his glory. When we fall short, we need to do just like David did. In Psalm 51, verses 9 through 12. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. It doesn't get any better than that. Lord God Almighty, I sinned and it was against you. Please don't hold it against me. Renew me, create in me that clean heart. Make me pure again. Let me be able to walk as one with you. That's God's love and mercy. Let's go to prayer.